Well, good morning, Elevate. How are you guys doing this morning? I mean, it's a good day to be here. It's a good day to worship uh, with you guys today. I'm thankful that the, the weather held off this afternoon. It's supposed to be beautiful. So I hope all of you guys spend some time outside, spend some time in fellowship with your families. Uh, if you're going to barbecue, this is a great day to do that, I can tell you that. Um, but before we continue on with our series, I just want to explain that we are in a series called uh, The Ten Commandments. Uh, but it's a little different because we are just going to study the first five of the Ten Commandments. The reason for that is because the Ten Commandments are broken up into like two sections. The first section talks about our relationship with God, and the second section talks about our relationship kind of with each other and how we should live on this earth. So we're going to talk about the first five now, and later on we're going to talk about uh, the second five later on in the year. Um, But to start off, uh, I have a couple questions for you guys. Have you ever said something Um, As though you had the greatest power ever. Have you ever said something like you had all the power on the earth, like I am going to do this, and then uh, later on you just didn't follow through or you kind of fell flat on your face, Um, but you said that you were going to do something. How many of you guys have ever done that? I know I have. I've been ridiculous before. I've said things that I'm like, you know what, I can do that. In reality, I, I really can't. Um, I've I've done that plenty of times in my life, Um, and and that's okay. I I think that's part of life. I think that's part of growing up, but that has a lot to do with what we're going to talk about today. One of my favorite stories uh, that I've heard before when it comes to basketball is about a player named Corey Benjamin. Does anybody ever heard of this name before? Uh, Okay, one person, which is Drew. Uh, See, Corey Benjamin played... uh, Back in the 90s, I think he might have sneaked into the 2000s a little bit. But he was a high school All-American. I mean, this guy was a phenomenal basketball player. And then he went on to play at Oregon University, and he was the leading scorer for like three years. This guy was a very, very good basketball player. In the 1998 draft, he was drafted 28th overall by the Chicago Bulls. Um, But during his rookie year, he kind of had a struggle. He had some leg injuries and he didn't get to play too much, but he ended the season doing okay. But one of those uh, practices at the end of the year, he made this great claim that he could beat Michael Jordan in a 1v1, a 1 verse 1 to 11 points. And this was right after Michael Jordan retired. He retired in 1998, and then three, four months later, Corey Benjamin got drafted. So they never got to play with each other. Well, of course, a couple of Michael Jordan's teammates were still on the team, so they immediately called him up and said, I can't believe what this rookie just said, and Michael Jordan had to act. So in the middle of practice, uh, they're just doing their normal drills, and lo and behold, Michael Jordan shows up, and everybody stopped practicing, and all the cameras that were on filming the practice immediately go to Michael Jordan, and I think Corey Benjamin knew exactly what was going to happen. So they started to go against each other. Michael called him out and said, okay, if you think you're better than me, then let's go on a 1v1, 1 versus 1 to 11 right now. Now, the entire film isn't necessarily out. They haven't released this footage of them going back and forth. But at the end, it was very obvious that Michael Jordan beat this person very handedly. Some of the people who were there said that it, was, it seemed like Michael wasn't really even trying. And during that, when they were going against each other, Michael was screaming at Corey, saying, why don't you look around? 
as the banners were all around the gym, saying, if you want to face me one-on-one, you first have to have respect for me. And after he beat him as he was going out, Michael was being interviewed by all the local news networks and ESPN, and he said, I can't believe this young kid made me come out of retirement so that I could show him that he needed to put respect on the things that I did. See, Corey realized that his greatest power was not his words. In fact, he had no power when it came to his words in that moment. See, this is what our main point is today. Our greatest power only comes from God. It does not come from ourselves. Exodus 20, verse 7 says this. This is the third commandment in our, in our uh, five commands that we're studying. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God. For the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses this name. <clears throat> now, this is a popular one. This is one that every single person has had some sort of conversation with their parent. I have a question. Have any of you guys ever said something, used the Lord's name in vain, in some sort of maybe colorful or very sly way, and your parents immediately got mad at you, like smacked you in the mouth, made you wash your uh, mouth out with snoop, snoop, soap, that's the word, not snoop, uh, soap, and it's all, and you're like, why in the world is this bad? Why? It was just like, you said it and you immediately got punished, and there was no explanation on why this was a bad thing. I can tell you this happened to me over and over and over again, and apparently I just never learned my, les- my lesson when it came to this. I got my mouth smacked all the time by my grandmother, and I got my mouth, I even remember getting my mouth uh, washed out with soap for my friend's parents. That's how bad I was at this. I just could not get some of these phrases out of my head. But this type of la- language was very prevalent during this day. This was something that was built into the culture of the Israelites at this time. If you remember a little recap from last week, if they, um, the Israelites grew up in the Egypt time, and there was gods everywhere. I mean, there's probably hundreds hundreds of thousands. They maybe even reached a million gods at this point. And this was something that they grew up experiencing every single week. This was a conversation about a higher power that happened on a daily basis. little recap from last week, I talked about how this started because the Egyptians would pray to one god, and when that god didn't give them what they wanted, they just created another god, and they started worshiping that god. And they say, my God, this God, is going to give me this. And when this God did not perform in the way that they thought he should perform, they created another one. And then they were going to create another one, and they created another one. And after so long, they probably had more gods than they knew what to do with. They probably had more gods than they knew the names of that they created. This was a conversation that happened all the time. The difference between gods that were made up and the God of creation is where it starts. The gods um, that we would have worshipped or they would have worshipped all started with the people. I want something, therefore I'm going to try to convince the God that it should happen. So if it doesn't happen, then I'm just going to go find somebody else and find somebody other God to convince so I can get what I want in this moment. It was almost like they would try to pray and pray and pray to try to convince this God that he should bless, they should this God should bless them in some sort of way. It was almost like the God that they worshipped got more powerful as they prayed 
in some sort of way. That's how they treated these gods. But the God of the world, the God who created everything, the God that we worship today, the God that we see in Scripture, we see that everything flows down from God. It's not the gods that they worship where everything flows from the people to the gods. Our God, it starts with Him and it flows down to us. In the New Testament, we see the new covenant with Christ. We have scripture that is found in the Bible, the teaching of Jesus, and how this idea of everything flowing from God to the people hasn't changed much, even when Jesus came. God has promised, given promises through Christ and says, because of these things, there should be an outpouring of fruit. So God is giving us blessings on this earth. God is providing a way on this earth, and we should, in a turn, have an outpour of blessings. So for the Israelites, the Jewish people, they have, would have received the Ten Commandments, and this would have been a complete dig to the gods that they have worshipped. This would have completely reset their worldview as they knew it. The Israelites had been enslaved for 400 years, had another culture just ingrained in their, in their minds for 400 years, and when God said, you should, have, you should not take my name in vain, this would have been a complete mind-blowing experience for them. Because for them, if a god did not perform, they'd just go to another god. God says, if you don't get what you want from me, you still need to follow me. You still need to be obedient. You still need to be faithful. So God set a completely new precedent in this moment. When he gave the Ten Commandments, he said, the new precedent is that you follow me, that we follow the one true God. In the New Testament, before Jesus ascended into heaven, he encourages his disciples to continue down this path. In Matthew 28, 16 through 20, it says this, Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always, to the very ends of the age. Jesus took his disciples one last time before he ascended into heaven and encouraged them to continue to do what they'd been doing for the past three years. He said, take my message and baptize people into the fellowship of believers. Baptize them into the family that is under God. And then teach them to obey everything that I've commanded. If you have been in the church a long time, and you know you have heard the Scripture... If you've been baptized and you've received grace and the forgiveness of your sins, it is like Jesus has been tattooed across our chest. It's permanent. It's not going anywhere. When we are baptized into Christ, when we receive that grace, that, that grace, it's there forever. It doesn't just go away. It doesn't just disappear. We shouldn't just walk away because we don't get our way. 
It's like we have a new identity in our life, and it is towards Christ. And we follow Him and Him alone. But this way of following God was no new thing when it came to the Christians. Like the Jewish people had been experiencing this for generations and generations. The Jewish people prayed for a Savior for, for, for 400 years. They prayed to the God. They probably prayed to multiple gods. God, please save us from this enslavement. So when it happened, and they received the Ten Commandments, God wanted to remove the idea that we know what's best for us. God wanted to remove the idea that it started with us and we just needed to figure out our own life by going to this and that, trying to accomplish what we want or receive what we want. God wanted to remove that idea completely and place a new idea that just meant that it was a relationship between us and God and we followed Him wherever He went. So if you remember in that story, what God did is He set up this system where they followed him, a physical him, throughout the day. Where it was a pillar of fire by night and a cloud by day. Where they were forced to renew their minds. That it was like, look, it's no longer about you guys. It's no longer about the gods that you put your trust in. It's no longer about your own understanding, but we're going to transform our minds into a new understanding, which is we are going to follow the one true God. doesn't matter how difficult it is doesn't matter if we're hungry or we're tired or we have to wear the same clothes for generations and generations. We are going to follow the one true God. I'm not sure where you find yourself today in your relationship with Christ. It might be your first time in church for a while. It might be your first time in church ever. You might believe that there's a God, but you're searching to know what that means. Or you might be the one that's been worshiping God your entire life, and you kind of feel like there's this tug of war between your ideals and what God wants. That, these, that your ideas still spring up in your head over and over again. You're still trying to follow those, but you know in the back of your head that you're supposed to follow the one true God. And you feel like your mind's just being tugged from left to right over and over again. So let me ask you another question. Who is following who in this relationship with God? If you had it your way, if you look at your life and you take an evaluation, who is leading in this relationship? See, as God continues to define the relationship, when God says that we should not take his name in vain, God meant three aspects in this. And we see in the scripture of what these people struggled with. The first one is this, we declare unearthly power often. When I was in college, I had a professor that said, there are two biblical words that we use as curse words. The first one we, we, we use, and it's also the name for a donkey, and the other one is one that, that God uses often, but we also like to use it, which is damned. These are two biblical words that God uses all the time, but we as people have taken them and used them for curse words. Now before you clench your, your seats, because I said an interesting word, here's the definition. Here's the definition of that word. It is to pronounce a sentence after determining guilt. 
to pronounce a sentence on God's, command, uh, God, God's condemnation, to be under a sentence, or to lose salvation. That's what that word means. Phrases like this come across as normal. We hear them all the time. We, we, you know, we, we hear them everywhere. We, see them on t- we hear them on TV. We hear them in movies, radio, music. Comedy uses it all the time. We run into them on a daily basis, specifically the second one that I said. I'm wondering what God thinks about us as we, as we run around his creation, shaking our fists at things and demanding that God damns things that are just random objects. As though we have the power not only to control God, but to make sure a specific object is sent to hell for all of eternity. As we go throughout our house and we stub our little toe on the desk, and we command that this small little table goes to hell for eternity, as though we have all the power because of that silly little leg on that coffee table. Though it's hilarious, and even though we laugh at times when people say it, We declare unearthly power as though we are God, and it fails every time. We are not God. We don't have the final judgment to determine what goes to hell and what doesn't go to hell. And we even make determinations as though this, this stand or that table has a soul enough to be judged in the final days. We think we have the power. See, we might not think it's a big deal, but as we can see in this scripture, God takes it very seriously. How we treat each other in relation to God is very important to him and his creation. To look at somebody and curse them out of anger is not following God, but following ourselves and our own ideas and what we want. We live by the standards of God and not by the standards of our feelings and how we want life to go. Growing up, uh, my favorite sport was to play football. Um, I, was, I was okay at it. I wasn't the best at it, but I, most of my friends played football, and I think that's why I enjoyed it so much. Um, but we, we had a, an abundance of coaches as I played sports throughout the years. We had some really, I had some really great coaches like significant coaches that, that I felt made me a better player. We had some okay coaches, and we had some awful coaches, like coaches that probably shouldn't be around kids, awful coaches. And they varied from year to year, and at the beginning of the season, you just never knew what you are going to get into. You never knew how the, the, the person and the atmosphere was going to react. You never knew how you were going to have to talk to that person because the way that you talked to your previous coach might not be appropriate to the way that you talk to the new coach. And it seemed like that first couple weeks, that first month, we were all like on pins and needles trying not to offend the coach so we didn't have to run. But this coach had started out playing in my, in my high school years. It, it started out normal. We were like, oh, we're just continuing to do the same drills that the last coach did. We're learning a different playbook, but that's no different. We're used to learning a new playbook every year or two. We went to camp that year, and it seemed like it was pretty normal. My interactions with this coach seemed pretty normal. He seemed pretty encouraging. And he loved to talk about how we were on the same team. He loved to talk about how we have a name on the front of our chest, and we're playing for that school. We are representing our high school as we went on to play other teams. But then the season started. And as soon as my coach stepped onto that field, and the lights are shining on us, 
and the other team, and, and we run out the we run out the tunnel. He's already out on the field, and the other team runs in, and the stands are completely packed, and they're screaming, cheering for us. It seemed like this coach completely changed his mentality. All of a sudden, this person just completely changed. And he went from being this really encouraging and we're going to do this together person, and he started screaming at the players. He started screaming at the other coaches. He was going off on referees. And he was screaming at players as they weren't performing the way that he thought that they should. And I remember it was close to uh, the fourth quarter, and I was going for a tackle. And when I, when I went to go for this tackle, I hit the guy's ha- uh, foot but my hand behind me went into the turf. And when I went up, I immediately knew something was wrong because it just felt different. And I looked at it and it didn't seem any different, but by the time I got to the sideline, my thumb had swelled up like three times the size that it normally was. The doctor thought, when I went to the doctor after the game, he said that it, it probably happened where my thumb got dislocated and then went right back in and it just kind of traumatized the whole like, thumb. But it hurt, and I couldn't perform in the way that I thought I could, and I thought I was hurting the team because I had this, this jammed thumb. And I went to the coach, and I said, Coach, what am I supposed to do? What do you want me to do? And I remember he grabbed me by the face mask and pulled me in. And he said, I don't care what you do, but fix it. And I remember going to uh, my friends, and I told them what, they said, what he said. And if you can imagine, I didn't have much respect for that coach afterwards in game after game it, it, it kind of we kind of realized that it wasn't really about the name on the chest it wasn't really about the name that we were trying to represent in our high school but it had more to do with him and glorifying him because of the coach that year because of the way his actions every single team that we faced whether we faced LCA or we faced Lafayette or other teams, everybody thought we were a joke because of who we were playing for. You can see Christians do the same thing. We walk around wearing Christian t-shirts all the time. We even got Elevate Christian Church t-shirts over there that you can go and get. We have, we have coffee mugs with that say Christian on it. Some of us have the ichthus on the back of our car. Some people call it the Jesus fish. We have things on our social media. We post Bible verses. We have in our tags that we're a Christ follower. Some of us love to share what the church is doing. But honestly, how does it look to people that aren't Christians when we don't follow what Jesus says, but just the contrary? Instead of valuing others above ourselves, we value ourselves above every other people, where we lie and we cheat and we steal and we curse and we declare the power that God has on this earth that we have and we, we shake our fists at the air as though we have all this power. What it makes us look like, it makes us look like we're ignorant towards the gospel. And that's my second point. It makes you look like the change that's supposed to happen in your life never existed in the first place. It's almost like we take the most powerful information that we could ever have on this earth, and it's supposed to be a big deal 
and we minimize it and we share it and it's just kind of gross. What happens when we are called to be different, but in reality, we aren't different? See, there's this person in the Bible named Peter. He had a significant uh, part in the Gospels. If you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and even into Acts, you'll see this name Peter pop up quite often. And the reason for that was he was one of, you know, Jesus had 12 disciples, but he was kind of one of the, the, the popular three. Like Jesus had the 12 disciples, but he had three that he really kind of paid attention to and loved on. Jesus even described him as the one that he loves. But Peter, as Jesus was being carried away and to be crucified, Peter's whole world flipped upside down. The person he'd been following and loving on for three years, his teacher, his rabbi, the person who believed in him was thrown in jail and was sentenced to die. And he didn't know what he was supposed to do. So he ends up running away from this, his current situation where everybody's screaming and not knowing what to do. This world person that was supposed to make a huge impact in the world is now being crucified, his friend. And he comes in contact with some people after he runs away. This is what Matthew 26 69 through 75 says. Now Peter was sitting out in the courtyard, and a servant girl came to him and said this, You also were with Jesus of Galilee, she said. But he denied it before them all. I don't know what you're talking about, he said. Then he went out to the, to the gateway. Another several servant girls saw him and said to, saw, sorry, said, saw him and said to the people there, this fellow was with Jesus of Nazareth. He denied it again with an oath. I don't know this man. But after a little while, those standing there went up to Peter and said, Surely you are the one. Surely you are one of them. Your accent gives it away. Then he began to call down curses, and he swore to them, I don't know this man. And then immediately, the rooster crowed. Then Peter remembered the words Jesus had spoken. Before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly because he felt so much guilt. Everything he knew, everything he stood for, all the great claims he made to Jesus, Jesus, I'll never leave you. Jesus, I will never stop following you. Jesus, I will even die for you. All of that came crashing down with just one simple question. Hey, were you with Jesus? Hey, do you know that Jesus that's being crucified? And in an instant, all the great claims that he made had fell to the wayside. And even though he once claimed to be a great follower of Jesus... In the world's eyes, he was just a normal person. He even seemed ignorant, ignorant to Jesus altogether. I'm going to ask the band to come back up. Three days later, Jesus, three days later after Jesus denied, after Peter denied Jesus, Jesus, was, Jesus died and he was buried. And it seemed that all the disciples were just completely heartbroken. They're in distress. They're kind of like dogs wandering without a master. 
So they decided to go back to what they were doing before Jesus, which was fishing. They all got a, uh, on a boat, and they were trying to fish all day and all night, and it just wasn't successful. They threw, the, they threw the nets on one side, it didn't work. They threw them on the other side, it didn't work. They tried circling around, and it just didn't work. And there's a guy that was walking on the shoreline, and he screams out to the disciples in the boat and says, hey, have you tried throwing it on the other side of the boat? And they're like, well, duh, we've been doing this all day. Like, of course, we've tried it. And one of the disciples said, well, let's just try it. What, what are we going to lose? We've been trying to fish all day. So they cast the nets on the other side of the boat. And immediately the boat just fills with so many fish. And then Peter looks to the shore one more time. And he realizes that the person who asked him, asked them to throw the net on the other side of the boat was Jesus. So Peter jumps off the boat and swims to be greeted by Jesus. And Jesus wanted to have breakfast with Peter. And this is what it says in that interaction in John 21. When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Then Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him a third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Then Jesus said, feed my sheep. Very truly I tell you, when you were younger and, and, and dressed yourself and went where you wanted, but when you were old, you stretched out your hand and someone else will dress you and lead you where you need to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death that Peter was going to have to glorify God. Then he said this to him. He said, follow me. I think Peter found out something very important in that moment. Even though God, even though he, he shouted in ignorance, even, even though he said, look, I don't know this Jesus, even though he went through his denial, there still was this desire for relationship. And because of that, because he went through the denial, and Jesus was there and still wanted that relationship, he immediately felt that guilt in his heart. It says that Peter hurt. There was guilt there. The second commandment says this. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God. For the Lord will not hold anyone guilt guiltless who misuses it. See, the reason it hurts the reason that your mom might have smacked your mouth or washed your mouth out with soap was because it hurts the relationship between us and God. The reason it hurts 
the reason that it's, it's there is because we are claiming to be something we're not. We are representing Christ in a way that we shouldn't. And we, as a teammate of Christ, as a follower of Christ, as a relationship with Christ, are not making, is not making Christ look good. But even though that happened, Jesus did something. The redemption of Jesus was shown in this moment. He takes Peter back and he allows Peter to answer the question over again. See, Peter was asked three times if he knew Jesus, and he denied it three times. Jesus allowed him to go back, but he asked him a different question. He said, do you love me? And he asked him three times, do you love me? As, Jesus, as Peter was asked the second question. And as he asked the third question, Jesus responded with, do you love me? And even though Peter messed up three immediate times, Jesus immediately went back and covered those three denials with, yes, Lord, I love you. Even though we mess up, we might even deny Jesus to our friends and to our family. We might make God look bad on a daily basis as we drive throughout the town and we have the ichthus on the back of our car and we're cutting people off and cursing. We might cheat, we might curse, we might walk around as though we have all this power. But thanks be to God that he sent his son Jesus down on the cross so that he can come to us and through our denials and he can do the exact same thing that he did for Peter. He does for us. And that's why the main point for today is this. Our greatest power only comes from God. Our greatest power that we have is grace. Dear Heavenly Fathers, I want to thank you so much for today. Thank you so much for this scripture and this commandment that we should follow you first. That we don't take your name in vain because we follow you and you have all the power. God, I can only imagine the Israelites experiencing this, this teaching for the first time where he says, look, it doesn't matter what happens in life, you're going to follow me because you need to be obedient and faithful to me and put your trust in me. And we see this as it, it goes even through Peter. Where even though he did not follow this command completely, we see this new covenant which introduces grace. And we know that that's the greatest power that we could ever receive here on this earth. God, thank you so much for showing us that. And thank you so much for your son Jesus. I ask this all in your son's name. Amen.